Are you ready? Hey, everybody. Hey, folks. Hello, everybody. People in the back. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Without further ado. Without further ado. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm right there. We're, we're, we're going to get started. <laughs> Welcome to the Interloop Radio. I'm Rachel Coots. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and check out our website at theinnerlooplit.org. For any new listeners out there here on The Inner Loop Radio, we delve into all things creative writing, whether that be inspiration or craft, publishing or editing, how to make a living, or just how we all sit down each day in front of an empty page. We invite friends and local writers onto the show to talk about their writing journey, what inspires them, or to delve deeper into craft. On today's show, we want to talk about the healing power of writing. So I know... (laughs) I know the first thing that comes to mind is a sort of mental healing, but did you know, according to the NIH, the simple act of writing actually has been proven to decrease blood pressure and improve immune functioning. I did not know that. I did not know that either. (laughs) I did not know that at all. But I mean, like, it makes sense, right? Because you get into this kind of meditative state where you're just, I don't know, zoning out and zoning in, zoning out the world and zoning in. Zoning out and zoning in. (laughs) Yeah, you know. I wonder about, I mean, like, I know I have carpal tunnel, um, mm-hmm. so I wonder about like typing versus writing with a pen, which is better for you that way, or right. if there are just generally benefits to like staying active with your fingers. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm not well, a doctor. I, 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 In my research for this episode, I didn't get too deep in the nitty gritty of typing versus writing, but I did find another fun factoid, which I felt was really relevant to the inner loop, which is that reading your work aloud and processing Mm. it with others can further enhance those healing effects. So, I mean, the inner loop, it's doctor recommended. That's what I think. (laughs) That should be our new tagline. (laughs) The inner loop is doctor recommended. Um, I also, I mean, that I can totally believe because even yeah. you get like I don't know when you've finished something or I don't know not finished something even if, like if you're just playing with something you read it out loud and you're like oh that sounds good and you get like a little jolt of happy that is very different from like just staring at it or like Hopefully. when it came out you know from brain to hand initially um and again yeah. like as we've talked about before that feedback with people when you're sharing work that's again those like little endorphins and and serotonin boosts and yeah totally yeah I think totally you know I feel like there's all this research about how the little numbers on social media give you little boosts of like happiness and serotonin but I feel like the boost of serotonin I get right after I write is like you know 
exponentially higher than like yeah. you know any any social media could ever provide and so maybe and that's why i'm so longer. good at being like i'm not gonna go on instagram so i can write <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm yeah for sure yeah. I think it does uh, last longer too. But I mean, I think the other thing, the obvious thing that we haven't touched on yet is, you know, processing experiences with trauma, difficult experiences right. in your life. Um, writing, you know, is just, it's a way of uh, taking ownership of your experiences in a way that, that makes you feel like you have agency and that in itself can be, um, you know, really healing and, and from a mental perspective. Absolutely. I mean, and I think also, um, even just going through as a record keeping exercise, sometimes mm -hmm. to look back at later and say, okay, where was I in, you know, if you, if you write something down immediately following, um, a traumatic episode and being able to see how far you've come in recovery from that, or how you have changed or evolved from that down the road, you have that, you know, that piece, that tangible thing to compare to and then grow from in your writing mm. beyond, right? Yeah. And I think I would even take it a step further and say just the simple act of, I'm going to make up a word here, storifying mm -hmm. your experience, turning okay. it into a narrative, a story that in itself is healing because Absolutely. it makes sense of, of all this seeming like feeling like chaos sometimes, you know? Well, and it gives you, it makes sense. It can give you distance where you need it. It can give you closeness where you need it, you know, because as you said, you're a little bit more in control of, of how it's impacting you in, when you, when you storify it. I like that word. Storify. Storify. Point TM or R, whatever the little sign is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> TM, TM, CR, TM. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I think... I think this is a fun topic because um, not only, you know, again, thinking about things from both the psychological perspective, but also like a physical perspective Absolutely. and the fact that writing can really be, you know, a part of self-care in, in a way. Well, and you and I have talked about this a lot for, you know, at, at specific points in our own life and writing journeys, but also just as something that we've seen um as some of the power most powerful things that we've read from other authors right um, who we admire and respect um mm -hmm. you, you see that come through the writing and and they even you know hear them talk about it openly um yeah that was a that was a trailing thought but <laughs> it was a trailing thought but it trails right into uh the the next guest which i think we should go ahead and get to after the break uh we will get more on this from someone who has experienced it firsthand our author's corner spotlight dean watson stay tuned let's gather 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 please um, you can gather in. Gather around, gather around for the second half. And we're going to get started. We're going to get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We've been discussing healing through writing, and now we'd like to welcome Bernardine Watson, poet and author of Transplant, a memoir from Washington Writers Publishing House, and this month's Author's Corner Spotlight. Welcome, Dean. Hi. 
<laughs> We're very excited to have you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. Uh, so I thought we'd do things a little differently and ask you to go ahead and uh, offer us a reading from your memoir, if that's okay. Sure, I will. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the first chapter of the book where I talk a little bit about my background and how I became kind of who I was at the time that this was happening to me. And it, the chapter is called My Secret Life. I grew up in a black, poor to working class neighborhood in South Philly, just blocks away from the Seventh Ward area where W.E.B. Du Bois did his landmark 1899 sociological study, The Philadelphia Negro. We were the Hayes clan, well known and respected in the neighborhood as people who didn't bother anyone if no one bothered them. For much of his adult life, Daddy worked on construction sites as a mason tender, an on-site assistant to the stonemason who helped carry tools, transport materials, and keep the job site clean. My father was a highly intelligent man who later in life told me how much he hated that job and how disrespectfully he was treated by white coworkers. I'm fortunate I didn't kill someone on that job, he admitted. But daddy got up between four and five every morning and went to work to support his family. In the early 1970s, when my father was in his 40s, he got a job as a business agent for the laborers local 332 and proudly served as the local's vice president. Mommy was a homemaker until my little brother Jerry was old enough for school. Then she worked first as a kindergarten aide and later as a clerk typist for the Philadelphia School District. Grandma Daisy dipped ice cream on work days, on weekdays in the basement of John Wanamaker's department store. However, to supplement her income, she also ran a speakeasy out of her home on the weekends, selling booze and chicken or fish dinners and renting rooms to customers who got lucky or just got too drunk to go home. With few exceptions, we and the neighbors we lived among were hardworking people. We loved each other, fought each other, and looked out for each other. At the same time, despite our closeness in proximity and emotion, everyone did what they could to keep their personal business to themselves. In our world, people came and went. Babies were born and died. Folks coupled and broke up and fortunes rose and fell without much open discussion of the circumstances. Ain't nobody's business was the unspoken and when necessary, spoken mantra. My father Bernard often told us, what happens in this house stays here. There would be hell to pay if he ever heard that one of us put family business in the street. Of course, there was always gossip but engaging in too much idle prattle could be dangerous to your well-being. My Aunt Betty once punched our neighbor, Miss Louise, in the face and sent her to the hospital for gossiping about some nefarious activities she'd seen going on in my aunt's house. She should have stayed out of my business, 
was the only reason Aunt Betty ever gave for the assault. When I think back on the people I grew up with, their attitudes about others, poking around in their private affairs, make sense to me. Most in my family and community didn't have much more than their pride, and they wanted to keep it. Life was hard enough without everyone knowing your ups and downs, offering their two cents about how you ought to live your life, or even worse, using the information to make you feel lower than you already did. This philosophy and way of life, which molded me as a child, influenced the way I lived my life as an adult and faced my disease. Mm. Beautiful. I love how evocative that is. And I just am seeing a whole world unfolding in my mind's eye. Wonderful. Thank you yeah. so much for sharing. Dean, it has um, such theatrical qualities to it, right? Like you're setting the stage, you're seeing, you know, um, the, I feel like I have the, the, you know, the little mini dramas. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes. In the background. I also, I grew up not too far from Philly. Um, and so it, it felt very connecting to me as well. We should chat about some of those things. Well, just can you just tell me where you grew up? I grew up in a little town on the river in on the Jersey side called Bordentown. Um, okay. So just a little bit north and then um, lived in Philly later, later in life. But. I don't know Bordentown, but Jersey and Philly are cousins. Yes, that is true. <laughs> Philly is much more Jersey than it is Pennsylvania, right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, anyway, um, yes. Yeah, so Dean, I, I'm so interested to hear what inspired you to write this memoir and why it felt important to you to share this particular story. Well, you know, the story is about my trials with kidney disease. I was diagnosed in 1983. Um, well, I wanted to write it, first of all, because I'm a writer. And writers write where they should. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and you know, I, I, my whole career uh, was. I wrote my whole career. I wrote for uh, foundations and nonprofits, and I was always writing mm -hmm. concept papers and essays mm -hmm. and uh, articles. I also did some writing for the Washington Post, but. I thought of writing a book was the ultimate for a writer. So I just mm -hmm. wanted to prove to myself that I had the discipline and really the skill to, to write a book. But also, um, as you heard in uh, my excerpt, I kept a lot of things secret in my life. That's the way people in my life uh, when I was growing up were, and I didn't talk to anyone about my disease mm. for almost 16 mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. um, just a very, very, very few people. And so mm -hmm. when I decided to write the book, really, I wanted to get out from behind that secret. Mm -hmm. I wanted to uh, no longer have it be so heavy on me. I thought that mm -hmm. the fact that I had kidney disease 
and had been on dialysis and had to transplant made me different from everybody else. But the more mm-hmm. work I did on myself uh, spiritually and uh, mentally, I realized that having kidney disease made me more human, not less human. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, um, you know, I wanted to be seen in my fullness. So that also inspired me to write the book. I love that sentiment that um, it makes you more human, not less human. I feel like it's such a simple connection, but it's one that we often forget or overlook. Mm -hmm. Like when you find something wrong with yourself or there's a flaw and you think this isn't right, this isn't part of who I am, but then you have to remember that humans are flawed. This Mm -hmm. is part of our experience is struggling and having challenges and I just think that's such a beautiful sentiment and I'm curious along the same lines how did I mean you touched on it a little bit but maybe a little more about how the writing of your story changed your experience of living with this incurable disease well I think that um what has happened to me is that I feel like I have more, and you used the word earlier, Rachel, I have more agency mm-hmm. around the disease. It's not only acting on me, I'm mm-hmm. acting on it. Mm-hmm. I've written a book. Mm-hmm. I won an award for the book. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to you. Uh, I'm coming out from be- from behind mm-hmm. the disease. And the, it's mm-hmm. almost as if, I mean, it's not like it's not with me every day. Sure. It is, but it's in its place in my life. Mm-hmm. And um, I I just, I feel much better, more healthier, mm-hmm. more whole. It's been part of, writing the book has really been part of my healing. That mm-hmm. might sound kind of trite, but it's really, um, really been true. I am also warning people about the disease. I'm right. talking mm-hmm. about it. I am uh, acting instead of just having it act on me. So uh, the writing has really been um, very big, you know, in that way. I've gone from wanting to keep everything secret to just kind of being out there. Letting it out there. Yeah. Leaving it all on the page, as they say. Yeah, as it were, right? (laughs) I love the idea of seeing, you said seeing me in my fullness. I think that's such a beautiful image. and then also having it have its place. It's yes. there in your life in its place. And it does have mm-hmm. an important place. I I have some chronic um, illness issues as well. And, you know, it's you. It's an internal struggle where you're like, oh, well, it doesn't define me. But in, in some ways it does. And if you can embrace that and put those, those, those ways um, in the right place, I think that that's when you can make connections with people as you are talking about through the writing. Yeah. It's really such a such a beautiful thing. I and so I'm curious, Dean, because I saw that you've been writing poetry for a long time, over 20 years now. So I'm curious why you made the decision to write this story in nonfiction. I mean I'm a nonfiction writer myself, so I can certainly empathize with writing nonfiction, but I'm curious what made you decide to tell your story in prose as opposed to poetry? Well, yes, I have been writing poetry for a very long time. 
But with this book in particular, I want it to be concrete, mm -hmm. to the point. Mm -hmm. I did not want my reader to have to be wondering what poetic device I was mm -hmm. using to tell mm -hmm. my story. What does this metaphor mean? What does this mm -hmm. image mean? I want it to just sort of tell it. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe Jacqueline Woodson could do the story, my story <laughs> in poetry and verse, but uh, yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't think I could do that or did, nor did I want to do it. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I've written some poems about living with kidney disease, but I got to tell you, not many. Uh, mm. I'm, and I feel like I could write about individual things in my journey, but not mm -hmm. the entire story. It just mm -hmm. right. feels, um, you know, it feels like I, I want to be very, very concrete and direct mm -hmm. in telling the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even in that excerpt that you read, I feel like even though it was concrete and direct, it was also just so rich and deep at the same time. So it, that makes perfect sense to me why you would want, you know, as a more straightforward medium, but then there's, there are layers that are happening, emotional layers and layers of imagery on top of that as well. Yeah. Well, I hope it has some poetic grace too. Of course. <laughs> right. Exactly. There's some poetic writing in there. Yeah, Dean, exactly. I'm curious. I'm I'm throwing this at you. Um, In that excerpt also, you talked about how, you know, it was tradition in your family to keep things close and yeah. not air your dirty laundry as it were, or, yeah. you know, just not share things. Um, is anyone around in your family today? And, and what do they think about you sharing this? <laughs> I'm wondering. Well, every, everyone, well, first of all, my father was the one who really okay. pushed that and my father died. I don't know that I would have written this book with my father, unless <laughs> yeah. um, I was living on the other side of the world. Okay. <laughs> but um, everyone knows I'm writing a book. They even know that it's coming out, you know, soon. Mm -hmm. I don't know um, how everybody will feel about it. Sure. Because uh, I did tell some family secrets. Mm -hmm. And I um, and I don't know so much if they were secrets, but they were just things I think that uh, people just thought were they weren't just secrets to me, but just things that were inside the family. Mm -hmm. And um, I also said how I felt about some things that happened mm -hmm. in the family that I'm not sure everybody's going to be happy with. But, you know. I'm 72 years old. It's, it's <laughs> I your, can do what it's I want. your processing. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I think that's part of totally. the growth as a writer I that we see, right? Like yeah. <laughs> but to kind of get beyond that, you know, what's everyone going to think? And, and more just listen to what you know needs to happen. Yeah. And I hope that, um, that, Folks in my family, both nuclear and extended, will just take some time and reflect mm -hmm. before, you know, they respond. Mm -hmm. And I already told my husband that I'm putting him on phone duty. <laughs> <laughs> 
when people call, <laughs> they can talk to him and complain. Uh-huh. <laughs> love it. I love it. <laughs> I think you're right, though, Dean, that seeing someone sort of leave it all out on the page, as we said, and seeing that process of understanding the story, understanding the experience, it's very moving. And I think that um, oftentimes, like our family who, you know, might be uh, reticent or afraid of what we might say or, you know, uh, who are tend to be more um, closed off. I think that it can be a very freeing experience, even for yeah. the reader to be to say, oh, this is, you know, the story of, you know, my sister or my daughter or whatever. Um, I think it's actually it translates that healing. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us about your book, Dean. It's it's been such a pleasure. Um, And you can find out more about Dean, read more interviews and articles, and buy her book, Transplant a Memoir, on our website, theinnerlooplit.org slash authors corner, as well as on bookshop.org. And you can also catch her at our next reading on October 17th at Shaw's Tavern and at the Writers Center on October 22nd. Dean, thank you again so much for this amazing conversation, but will you stay for a little trivia? How trivial is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very trivial, question. I assure you. <laughs> well, I can use a little trivia. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> well, up next, uh, find out which famous writer rented a hotel room by the month to write in. Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We turn now to a little trivia related to self-care and writing routines. Uh, I thought that this was very apropos for a uh, an episode about self-healing. Is self-care is also part of that, and the r- routines that writers set up around their writing to ensure that that happens. Uh, so I prepared a little bit of trivia and mm-hmm. I encourage you, Dean and you, Courtney, to work together to uh, figure out oh, my answers to these very compelling questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Dean, you might, you might be in a good spot because I know we talked offline a little bit about your self-care routine. So like maybe you'll, maybe you'll pick up on these better than I will. We can, mm-hmm. we can join forces. <laughs> All right, so let's start with a very easy um, sort of matching game, she says, right. Um, So I'm going to give you a writer's name, and you tell me if they woke up before 6 a.m. or after 6 a.m. Okay. Okay? Easy peasy. All right, let's start with Virginia Woolf. Before or after? Did you say 6 a.m. or 6 6 a.m. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to go with after on that one. <laughs> You're like, does after anybody too. wake up before 6 a.m.? <laughs> no. After. After. Correct. She woke up after 6 a.m. All right. 
Ernest Hemingway. Was he even in bed by 6 a.m.? I, I know, mean. big drinker. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't be too hard. He's a big drinker. I'm going to say uh, I do. Yeah, I'm going to go with after as well. Incorrect. Somehow he got up before 6 a.m. I don't know how. <laughs> he only slept for an hour. Exactly. <laughs> After I've had one glass of wine, I can't wake up before 6 right. <laughs> No way. All right. Um, Gertrude Stein. Ooh. After. I'm going to go before on this one. Ooh, a split decision. But, it yeah. was after. Ugh. After 6 a.m. Yep. Yep. Okay. She was also up partying all night. So, yeah, exactly. It's hard to tell, though. I mean, if Ernest Hemingway could do it, the rest of these should get it true. Together. That's true. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit. And how about a true or false question? Okay. W.H. Auden obsessively checked his watch because he had everything timed down to the minute. Eating, drinking, writing, shopping, crossword puzzles, even Rachel, the you love this one. <laughs> Did this resonate? <laughs> I was like, Courtney's gonna love this. Uh-huh. <laughs> hmm. Did he time everything down to the minute? Yes. Yeah, sure. Yes, he did. Down to the All minute. Right. A man after my own heart. <laughs> you do that? Out, Dean. <laughs> These days. I've been doing it lately, yes, because I'm so busy. Courtney and I joke that my watch goes off, ding, and then I have to leave. <laughs> she disappears. Okay. Bye. All right. Here's another true or false. Um, as soon as he completed a piece, Jack Kerouac did nine touchdowns which is balancing in a headstand and then touching his toes to the floor. So he did nine of these every time he finished, completed a piece. I mean, he probably had some nutty habits, but I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah. Don't say false. It is in fact false, but not for the reason you think he (laughs) actually did that every day. Not just when he finished. Not the just piece. okay. Oh. So I mean, that actually <laughs> that tracks a little better. Yeah, <laughs> and it, he did it exactly nine times for whatever reason. He was a okay. <laughs> All right, another matching game. Who writes? I'm going to tell you, writer. You tell me if they write every day, or if they write in fits and spurts. Okay. Um. Let's go with Tony Morrison. I'm going every day. I would say every day. Wrong. She no? wrote in fits and spurts. Yes. Wow. I mean, Dean, you had to on that one. You were there, but I, yeah, I'm like, how do you get to be that much of a queen and, and not just do it <laughs> constantly? <laughs> oh. okay. Whatever works. Sorry, I, I got that one wrong. <laughs> <Right there. laughs> Um, how about Alice Monroe? Fits and spurts or every day? She strikes me as a very crafty person. Like I feel like she would do the everyday thing just because it's a like a craft. Because <laughs> it's a craft. <laughs> it's like one of those like craft mechanisms, you know? It's like the <laughs> I can't anyway. I'm gonna say every day simply because I was wrong the last time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you were both correct this time. It was every day. 
Mm-hmm. How about Susan Sontag? Oh, no. Fits and starts. Yeah. Correct. Fits and starts. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, softball here. Stephen King. Oh, every day, right? He's like so prolific. I will say, I'm going to say every day. Yes, every day. In fact, he writes six pages every day, no matter what, no matter what day of the week, no matter what's going on in his life. He always writes exactly six pages every day. That's wild. Just mind blowing to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Me too. I don't know if that's self care though. That might be right? like that may not be self care. Some borderline obsessive behavior. So now we are talking about Stephen King. Exactly. <laughs> All right. A uh, couple of fill in the blanks. Uh, this writer, when getting close to finishing a book, insisted on sleeping in the same room with it. This is a multiple choice. So, um, A, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, B, Selman Rushdie, C, Joan Didion. Oh, those are all good. I'm say Joan Didion. I'm going to go Marquez. Joan Didion is correct. Mm. Dean's Dean's coming ahead. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. What writer rented a hotel room by the month just for the use of writing? A. C.S. Lewis. B. Maya Angelou. Or C. Zadie Smith. I'm going to go Zadie. What do you think, Dean? Who was the other one? C.S. Lewis, Zadie Smith, and who? Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou. Correct. It was Maya Angelou. Oh, wow. All right. I was like, you know what? That's like clutch. I feel like I need to start doing that. Just like For get sure. out of the house. You go into work. You just go to your little hotel room. It does give me an idea, though. <laughs> you right? Know? Yeah. Inspiring. I think we could all get away from our families to write. That's right. forget, forget writer's retreats. Just retreat every day. <laughs> But I want one of those too, though. I know they are real good. They're so good. (laughs) We got one coming up in January. That's true. Hmm. All right. Uh, That is the end of my trivia. Thank you so much again, Dean, for being on the show and playing with us. Yeah. You are welcome. I totally enjoyed it. Awesome. And that is our show. We'll be back next Monday with our Just Checking In series, where we give our writer friends a call to hear how their writing lives are going. And if you want to learn more about The Inner Loop and all of our programming, you can visit us online at theinnerlooplit.org, where you can also donate to support us and local literature. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Inner Loop Lit. Today's episode was produced by me, Rachel Kuntz. Our theme music is by Andrew Logan, and our technical advisor is James Skinner. Thanks again to Bernadine Watson for joining us on the show. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to silently meditate on your gratitude. Or, you know, better yet, or after you do that, you could leave us a review. (laughs) Such as the Inner Loop Radio. It's the number one doctor-recommended home remedy for both ennui and high blood pressure. Yes, that's, I mean, I think that's the best one yet. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe. Subscribe so you can get inspired, get focused, and get lit. On the Interloop Radio. Ooh.